Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Mr. Gorbachev. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Welcome to Berlin Wall, remembering how the Cold War ended. Please welcome our host, Brent Sadler, Senior Fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning and welcome. I'm the Senior Research Fellow here at Heritage Foundation. And this day, 9 November, is an important historical event. Often overlooked, not really often thought about, it was the day in which in a remarkable display of people power on both sides of the east and the west divide of the Berlin Wall brought it down in a spontaneous display of people power. Today we're going to be joined by three luminaries of the Reagan era. They were instrumental in setting in motion policies and actions that actually made that day possible. And in lessons that are very important for us to reflect on today as we enter a new era of great power competition against China and Russia today. Uh, and without further ado, I'm going to go into a brief introduction of each of our members. We're first joined by Mr. Meese, who has been a long friend of President Ronald Reagan, going back to his time as governor of California. His time in the White House, he was a senior counselor, the senior policy advisor to Reagan until about 1985, and then became the Attorney General of the United States. The second person that I have to introduce today is Dick Allen, another notorious, longtime running friend of President Reagan and very deeply trusted confidant of all things foreign policy with a long history in multiple administrations. Uh, Mr. Allen, one event that I wanted to kind of bring to light was a trip that he took in 1978 where he took uh, then Ronald Reagan to Germany for the first time and his first in-person view of the Berlin Wall. His comment at the time would be very uh, illuminating of what would happen in just over 10 years. Reagan at that time said, this wall must come down. And it was in fact a statement, in the pro uh, statement by Ronald Reagan that uh, my view, Reagan's view of ending the Cold War was we win, they lose. They convinced him to join and support vigorously Reagan's run for president and his first early time in, in the White House. And then last joined with me in person is Bud McFarlane, also a long history of foreign policy, both in experience with the legislative as well as in uniform in the military and in the White House. An instrumental time during a transition in the Soviet Union as Gorbachev was bringing forward ideas of glasnost and perestroika and key arms control negotiations. I'm keeping my introduction short so that we can maximize the time to hear from these three gentlemen. But before we kick it off with you, Mr. Meese, I do have a first polling question I'd like to give to our audience as an, and to get a sense of where they are as well on this historic day. So if you can please call up the first polling question. I'll give you a few minutes to, to discuss that. And, and Mr. Meese, uh, be interested to hear your thoughts and recollections uh, both in your time and you know, the man, President Reagan, as well as lessons going forward into this new era of a Cold War and things that we should be thinking about looking ahead as we reflect on this important date, 9 November. All right, well, let's close that polling question. Over to you, Mr. Meese. Okay, good morning. It's a pleasure to join with my colleagues here and to discuss with you what is really a celebration of freedom. The thinking that culminated, culminated in the Berlin Wall coming down, 1989, actually goes back many years before that, for Ronald Reagan, it goes back even before he ran for governor of California. In the 1940s, he, he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, what he called his union. And during the era around 1947 and years following, he led that union along with other unions in the, in the movie industry in Hollywood as they defeated communism and a Communist Party USA where their leaders were trying to take over the movie industry so they could use it for, for communist propaganda. Ronald Reagan's success in that endeavor of mobilizing people against communism 
actually led to him being very much interested in studying communism, both domestically and internationally. And he was assisted in that effort by a good friend, Lawrence Bielinson, who was an expert on geopolitics and who has written several books on the subject and particularly about the Soviet Union threat. Together, uh, Ronald Reagan and Bielinson felt that any regime that ruled its people by force and by intimidation could not ultimately endure. And so when he was elected president, Ronald Reagan was ready to use that knowledge and also to mobilize the resources of our country to defeat Marxism around the world. Resources like the geopolitical, military, diplomatic, economic, and psychological capabilities of this nation. As we look back, we can see that there were several milestones that marked the path to the Berlin Wall coming down. They show how Ronald Reagan was able to combine action with rhetoric uh, in order to succeed in this effort. Other important leaders, of course, were also involved. People like Margaret Thatcher, Pope John Paul II, and others around the world. The action certainly started with rebuilding the United States military capability, which had deteriorated in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Ronald Reagan built up the military with the help of Congress and budgetary support to become the finest, finest and most effective military fighting force in the world. He also adopted significant new policies, policies that involved a new approach to the Cold War. Ambassador Gene Kirkpatrick described this as the Reagan Doctrine, and it had several aspects. The first was to engage Marxism on a moral plane, to point it out that what was going on in the communist captive nations and the Soviet Union itself were essentially immoral because no, no regime that was able to succeed simply by force and subjugation was they would certainly long endure. Second, it was to let it be known as he did that the United States and its allies would resist by all means necessary any further aggression by the Soviet Union, which had been gobbling up nations around the world. Third, it was to support freedom fighters around the world, such as those in Angola, Nicaragua, and Poland. Ronald Reagan was able to combine rhetoric and action very effectively. The rhetoric took many forms. Nearly 40 years ago, on the 8th of June, 1982, Ronald Reagan delivered an address to the British Parliament at the Palace of Westminster. In that speech, he predicted that the march of freedom and democracy, as he said, would leave Marxism, Leninism in the ash heap of history. He declared that we were witnessing a great revolutionary crisis. The crisis was not in the West, uh, but rather that it was unfolding in the home of Marxism-Leninism, the Soviet Union. He said it is the Soviet Union that runs against the tide of history by denying human freedom and human dignity to its, to its citizens and the citizens that were captive under its yoke. A year later, he, he dealt with action. And on the 8th of March, 1983, at the, at the convention of the National Association of Evangelicals in Orlando, Florida, he branded the Soviet Union an evil empire. These words had a tremendous impact. And indeed, uh, the historian Jane, uh, John Gaddis Lewis, or John Lewis Gaddis, pointed out in, in, wrote, uh, in his book, The Cold War, he said the use of the phrase evil empire, in using that phrase, Ronald Reagan and his anti-communist political allies 
were effective in breaking the detente tradition, which was essentially to do nothing while the Soviets pursued their aggression around the world. Thus, he said, it was the words like this that lay the groundwork for the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan's actions were matched by this rhetoric. At the same time, and then in the same year, he announced that the United States would embark upon groundbreaking research into the Strategic Defense Initiative, a comprehensive system that would actually make nuclear weapons obsolete if it, was, if it became successful. The Soviet Union had already been attempting such a system in violation of the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. But the president believed that for the United States to have, to have such a defensive weapon would destroy the Soviets' ability to make a first strike and also could undermine the USSR's ability to possess a, a threat to the United States at all, thus leading potentially to the end of the Cold War. Meanwhile, President Reagan also exercised great political courage, carrying out the NATO plan to station intermediate range nuclear weapons in Europe to counteract the similar weapons that had already been installed by the Soviet Union some years before. This in turn led to negotiations with Gorbachev in 1987, which provided the agreement between our country and the USSR to eliminate all intermediate range nuclear weapons in Europe, the first reduction of such weapons in history. <clears throat> the effort against the Soviet Marxism continued with the penultimate challenge by President Reagan coming uh, on the 8th of June, 1987, at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. As everyone remembers, he proclaimed, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. 20 months later came the event that enables us to have this celebration of freedom today, the 9th of November, 1989, the day that the wall came down. Thank you very much, Mr. Meese. While we, uh, before we set up for the next speaker, Mr. Uh, Allen, let's go ahead and call up the results from that first polling question and share it. Uh, and at this time, you go ahead and pull those, that, those results up. Thank you. The majority of our participants answered the question, is the U.S. in a new Cold War with China and Russia, by saying yes, we are in a new Cold War. Important as we look forward to the next, uh, our next challenges, it's actually a little bit more complex where we have two challengers. Uh, but Mr. Allen, let's go ahead and turn it over to you and I look forward to your comments, sir. Well, good morning. And um, I uh, think this uh, should be a very productive session. I'd like to start by um, just going back a bit farther to 1978. And it was in 1978 that I, I set up a trip uh, for uh, Ronald and Nancy Reagan and uh, conducted said trip uh, to uh, England, where we first met with uh, Margaret Thatcher. I don't know, can this be seen? Well, that's too bad. Uh, it's a picture of Ronald Reagan sitting with Margaret Thatcher on the occasion of their first meeting. And um, that set a tone for that European trip that uh, continued on to France, where we were roundly, uh, ignore, roundly ignored, I should say, by Francois Mitterrand. The only person who was willing to meet with Ronald Reagan in France was Jacques Chirac, who later became president of France and was very wise in, in meeting with uh, Governor Reagan. And then on to Germany. And it's a pity that this can't be seen because what I'm demonstrating here is a picture of the Brandenburg Gate um, on a rainy day in November. Uh, depicting Ronald and Nancy Reagan, Peter and Irene Hannaford, and Peter Hannaford's importance in this entire equation should never be um, understated. Peter Hannaford uh, was an extremely important person 
men with whom I worked very, very closely on every policy matter, every foreign and national security policy matter. And um, so I arranged the trip to, to Europe and off we went, stopping, as I mentioned, in the UK and in France, uh, where we were ignored. <laughs> it was uh, interesting to see how the French leaders uh, behaved after Ronald Reagan was uh, uh, elected president and came running to the door, knocking on the door in an attempt to uh, to get in. <laughs> um, and to Berlin, which was the capstone of everything. Uh, I won't go into too, too much detail, but uh, it was an extraordinary meeting. We went into East Germany, over the wall or through the wall, and uh, into Karl Marx plots in East Berlin. An, ex an extraordinary scene took place there. And uh, we had, uh, Peter and I had uh, literally to uh, simply uh, restrain Governor Reagan from intervening in a takedown in which the East German Volkspolizisten, the, the People's Police, had stopped a man with a shopping bag and one poked the barrel of his um, AK-47 into the man's stomach and uh, another poked his barrel into the shopping bag of the man to inspect what he had been carrying. And uh, this uh, annoyed Governor Reagan uh, extensively, shall I say. When we got to the wall and stood there and he simply said to Peter Hanford and to me, uh, fellas, we've got to find a way to knock this thing down. Those were his precise words. And uh, it was something he was able to witness, knocking it down. And it was largely his leadership with the participation of Margaret Thatcher, of course, and with the Germans and with particularly uh, Helmut Schmidt and Helmut Kohl uh, that was able to uh, bring about the, the downfall of the uh, Berlin Wall. So he had certain preconceived notions about the entire uh, confrontation with the Soviet Union. They were all basically valid, but had to be refined. And over the course of the next several years, they were refined, put into a platform that was um, adopted by the Republican Party in 1980 and um, became policy. One very interesting thing about Ronald Reagan is uh, what you saw is what you got. And when he said he believed in something, he did believe in something. He had strong beliefs. Uh, this picture shows the first meeting between Thatcher and uh, Reagan uh, in 1978 in London, when officials then in power, the uh, socialist social democrats then in power, declined to see Ronald Reagan, and so it was Lady Thatcher who uh, did receive him and was. It was a very warm relationship that was launched on that day in November. Um, as Ed had said, has said, working with a man who had deep convictions that were not tempered just by political expediency or the next election was an exceptional privilege. And those of us who had that opportunity, three represented today, can testify to the fact that uh, Ronald Reagan, as a man, had those deep convictions and maintained them. With that, I'll uh, turn immediately to my friend Bud McFarlane, and I can invite him, may I not, to proceed? Oh, thank you Please. very much. I, there's one thing I want to do before we go, we turn to, <clears throat> to Bud uh, for the final prepared comments. I did want to, uh, to bring up one more polling question, if we can bring that up. Because I think this will be important for your comments as well, Mr. McFarland. So go ahead and bring up that the second question. <clears throat> and while the audience, while, the while audience, you're taking, while you're taking a, a few a moments, few to, moments to, to read that, to read and that, to that, provide your, provide answers, your answers, I just want to remind, remind uh, for, uh, the for the virtual audience, audience at, 
As we're going As through, we're going please through, submit, please your, submit questions. your questions. There's a tab, There's a tab that you'll see on your, see on your computer, computer screen. screen. Please put your please questions. Put your questions. Uh, identify, uh, identify if you have a question to a specific, to a specific panelist, panelist that you would like you your would question, like question asked to, to uh, or if you would or like or it to all of the panelists, please let us know. And we'll come back to that in a moderated question and answer session after the prepared comments. And, and I apologize, I apologize to, you, to you, Mr. Allen. We will get those pictures and we will post it on the page. Once this event, Once this event the video of this event, event is recorded, is recorded and, edited and edited for public for distribution. distribution. So those will be included. Those will be included. All right. All right. What are we doing on, we doing on the poll? Over to you, Tim. Over to you, Tim. Sure. So, sure. The, majority so the, majority the majority of our participants answered the question, answered the question what, contributed what contributed most to bringing the Cold, Cold War to an end, as saying it was all of the above. Economic, Economic power and technological, and technological advantage, advantage, military power and deterrence, and, and competition over minds and ideas of free markets. free markets. Let's go back to the video. Uh, Mr. McFarland, does that, I mean, before you get into your comments, does that response, would that surprise you? No, it was well earned. In the course of four years and surely eight years, President Reagan put in place a system of policy formation, of planning, of identifying first what he believed the interests of the United States are then and now, and then how are those interests threatened. He realized upon coming the very first day to office but it all starts with selecting the best people to participate in this policy planning process. And thanks to Dick Allen and the president, he chose such luminaries as Dick Pipes, a career-long scholar of the Soviet Union, Roger Fontaine for Latin America, Constantine Mingus, later Jack Matlock, ultimately Bob Linhard for arms control, Bill Martin, who came from state, already an expert in energy matters and an excellent executive secretary for the president. Once he had a good staff aboard, he began this planning process, a very rigorous process originally sketched out by Dr. Henry Kissinger 10 years before, and yet it called for beginning with the president tasking his cabinet, saying, here are my goals. I want to achieve X and Y in the Soviet Union. He came to office at a time when the Soviets had been on a five-year run, penetrating, ultimately dominating country after country from Angola, Ethiopia, South Yemen, Mozambique, Finally, Nicaragua, well on its way to being dominated by the Soviet Union. And to task his government to say, we have to reverse this effort by the Soviets to expand their influence throughout the world. And we must do it with a consolidated, government-wide, all of the above participation. So as to help the countries that are affected, the ones I've just named, to be able to withstand by training their militaries, by providing financial assistance, and by enlisting USAID and other agencies and providing relief for the particularly stressed areas of these countries. Ultimately, this was a more imaginably successful in enabling these countries to resist, finally to overcome Soviet penetration in the course of the next four to eight years. After that, he would task his cabinet to go and focus upon other major interests. And probably the most salient study that was done involved the Departments of State, Defense, the CIA, all of the relevant agencies into examining the Soviet Union, its strengths, its weaknesses, and to rec make recommendations to him for how to overcome the pressures that they were making throughout the world to expand their influence, and to give him recommendations for what should we do politically with our allies, economically, with our superior economic strength 
and military. Militarily, we needed to rebuild a military that it had become terribly weakened in the prior administration's policies to fund it better, to identify specific areas, and notably in our de strategic nuclear deterrent, to make sure that deterrence was solidly based, and then to look for what we do best and how to apply it. Historically, that has always been high technology for the United States. Where is the cutting edge? Something that is beyond Soviet capabilities that could enhance deterrence and expose, frankly, the relative backwardness of the Soviet society. He went on to task his cabinet to do equivalent studies of what our policy options were and to give him choices. And he did that over 250 times, probably the most detailed recitation of American policy throughout the world over the course of his two terms in office. I recommend that the listeners in on today's call go back and look up something called NSDD 75. This was a lengthy study in his first year in office where he tasked Dick Pipes, Larry Eagleburger, ultimately Jack Matlock and others to make recommendations on what U.S. policy toward the Soviet Union ought to be. It's comprehensive. It has the political measures, the economic ones, and the military ones. It had a salient impact both on Americans to see that here was a man who was demonstrating leadership, who knew what our interests were, who knew how they were threatened, and had a plan to overcome these threats. That process of planning and tasking, making decisions, enabling the cabinet officers to come to the White House, agree, disagree, make changes, rudder orders, as the Navy would say. But finally, he would decide the next day which of these choices he would adopt, get behind, engage the Congress, make sure the money was going to be there, and then engage our allies and invite their opinions about how to assure that we're not only defending America, but we're deterring the Soviet efforts in Europe, the Far East, the Middle East, Africa, and beyond. The most detailed and effective policy planning process in modern history, led by President Reagan. Well, we had many challenges. And there, occasionally, were disagreements among allies, where allies would sometimes become vulnerable to their own needs, for example, for more predictable energy. And the Soviet Union would have a response that involved making Europe and London, France, Germany, reliant upon the Soviet Union. Bad idea, said Ronald Reagan. And he adopted uh, personally a means of bringing it to an end. And it led to a dust-up, even with his closest ally, Prime Minister Thatcher. But in the course of selecting a new Secretary of State here and engaging in pointed, friendly, allied discussions, come to a solution that was brilliant by not only limiting that reliance on Russia, but stimulating new discoveries, new drilling, offshore Netherlands, the North Sea, Norway, so that then and for years to come, Western Europe could be confident of its own ability to have enough energy. 
We're facing a similar problem today with Russia again trying to expand with a second pipeline, this time co-opting control of Germany's energy. We can't allow this to happen, and there are, thankfully, efforts in the private sector of America coming forward to prevent it. Well, all of these are examples of how Ronald Reagan knew our interests, knew how they were threatened, knew how to overcome them, engaged personally his administration, made decisions, and then led in executing the plans. This is a book description of leadership. Know what you're doing, have a plan for how to achieve it, and personally lead it to a success. And in eight years' time, the president did that comprehensively in Europe, and especially vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. His remarks that have been cited here in June of 87, calling for Gorbachev to bring down the wall and open the gate, Brandenburg, had an impact, for sure, in buoying the people in East Berlin and West Berlin to have hope. And two years later, to realize the call was being heard by Gorbachev, that there was something, if not enough, in Glasnost and Perestroika to build on, and on this day. In 1989, the wall came down. Millennials listening today, think hard about that. Why did that happen? It happened because an American was elected who believes strongly in our values, the rule of law, accountability, hard work. These are the values Ronald Reagan brought to office and implemented in every decision he made in eight years. Reducing the size of government, of taxation, of overregulation, and a dozen other gains that had been ignored for too long. Think hard about these things, fundamentals our values, advance our values, know what our threats are, our interests are, and always stress the importance of allies. Today we're facing a similar challenge from China in collaboration with Russia. Again, seeking as in the 70s, to penetrate and ultimately dominate country after country that are vulnerable in Africa, Latin America, and beyond. They have goals. They include seizing control over the critical strategic materials. Things like cobalt and the DRC. Things that are critical to things that you and I are going to need in the generations ahead things that enable us to have cell phones or not, to have electric cars or not, and aircraft that are running off new fuels and so forth. A very pointed penetration effort that has left them today dominant in more than 70 countries around the world. So we must wake up, remember how Ronald Reagan did it, get our act together and begin to reach out to allies, bring them together and make clear we know how to do this, the United States can lead this, and we intend to do that. You're seeing it today in London. There are American companies engaged with the British saying, here's the threat, here's how we overcome it and talking to private companies as well as governments from there to Poland, to the three SI countries in Eastern Europe, to the Middle East, and to Africa, where countries are being overcome day by day. Beyond strategic materials, the Soviets 
excuse me, the Chinese and Soviets, today are looking for key choke points, dominating key terrain such as going around Sri Lanka with a blue water navy and coming on past Djibouti where they have a military base to ultimately control Suez where the Soviet Union is trying today to build four nuclear power plants. Stop and think, today, did you know that China owns 96 ports around the world? This is power and its ambition, ambition to dominate, secure access to the key strategic markets of the whole world, that is Western Europe and the United States. They're coming. We must respond effectively to become more competitive than we have been for the last 30 years. At the end of the Cold War, we were proud and happy, but we had the illusion that the rest of the world would automatically adopt and become Jeffersonian. It hasn't happened. And we've rested on our oars for too long. It's time to come back, become competitive. We can do this. We must do this. It's the finest legacy of President Ronald Reagan that he restored our competitiveness, he enabled us in political terms, economic terms, and in the military to bend, to become the giant leader of the free world. Think hard about your decisions, millennials listening here. Think hard about learning, developing the skill sets, politically and otherwise. Our values, the rule of law, accountability, and your obligation to serve your country, serving others. This is not only biblical, it is a self-interest. We can do this, America. God bless Ronald Reagan. Thank you very much. Very powerful for the great power competition that we are in already. So thank you again. Um, I do, before we turn to the audience for from questions and answers a session, I did have one, I, did, I do have a couple prepared questions, and I did want to pose one to, to you, Mr. Allen. Um, when the wall came down, when you had popular movement on both sides in East and West, uh, I guess, like some people of other historical events, where were you at that moment? But I guess more importantly, because you traveled with President Reagan to Berlin, and you saw and you witnessed and you helped nurture that commi commitment and conviction to end communism and the Soviet Union's control over Eastern Europe. Was it a surprise to you that cold 9 November 1989 evening when the people came out to pull that wall down? Yes. <laughs> Emphatically, yes, it was a surprise. Um, when one uh, is... <laughs> Is, is as old as we are, uh, you, you become accustomed to things, and the uh, wall had become a permanent feature of uh, our lives, we thought. And uh, that particular evening was one that was electrifying for everyone who was watching. It was amazing. I was tuned into German television <clears throat> uh, and watching it minute by minute, and uh, I, I could hardly contain my own excitement at what was what was happening at the time. And having had the opportunity to uh, uh, go through the wall or go over the wall or however we did uh, in Indy East Berlin in 1978, and having myself been uh, dozens of times behind the wall to observe one could scarcely believe what was happening. Uh, it, it was happening and it was remarkable uh, to have lived during that time and witnessed it firsthand uh, was indeed a, a great historical privilege. 
Uh, so let's go to the audience. Ted, do we have uh, the first question from our audience? And again, thank you, you, you all today for your participation and, and patience with us as we pull this event together. Go ahead. What's the first question? Speaking of the new Cold War, one of our question askers notes that Ronald Reagan and Attorney General Meese worked very hard to encourage China to work towards establishment of the rule of law and free markets in China, but unfortunately China has reversed progress on all fronts. Did the U.S. and Western policies contribute to these reversals? And what can the U.S. and Western allies do now to encourage China's dictators to reverse course yet again? I think that question is to you, Mr. Meese. Well, I think one of the things we have to do is to be firm in our dealings with, the, with China and uh, not to acquiesce in what they are doing. For example, we might make it very difficult for them to continue what Dick Allen talked about and what Bud talked about of their continuing to dominate uh, the trade and and uh, maritime activities around the world. We ought to make it very difficult also for them to continue their various uh, actions of uh, subjugating people so that these are brought to public attention around the world. China does not only want to dominate the world, they want to be respected. They want to be seen as a, as a power, one of the powerful nations of the world, but they want to they have people see that they, are, that they are legitimate. We ought to do everything we can to destroy that legitimacy by pointing out what they are doing in fact, and those kinds of things that don't make the network news. So, Mr. McFarland, I know you did. You traveled early with uh, Kissinger as we were just starting a new relationship with communist China in the 70s. Um, what would you care to add to this question with that experience and then what you've seen over the last few years? It's a very good point, Brent. Uh, some today would look back and say, gosh, President Nixon brought on this renewal of ties mm -hmm. with China and imply that it uh, has led to all this mischief. Well, people forget easily that at the time we were in the middle of a Cold War where the Soviet Union was building a massive military capability to invade across Western Europe. And President Nixon saw the opportunity to tie down many, many divisions, of many as 44 divisions of Soviet troops on the Chinese border. And the impression that the United States was becoming, if not an ally of China, and we never did, but a presence of influence on China going forward, tied down those divisions, prevented them from being in Western Europe, and enabled us to prevail in the Cold War through the years, optimism and hope, typical American virtues, led to Deng Xiaoping declaring that China would become a peaceful, self-interested, but not aggressive country. Well, our, your question asked, did we contribute then to China's rise? No question about it. It's true. American investors seeking to provide China the ability, the means, the industry to lift up their own people was phenomenally successful. And indeed, China's government has lifted up more than 300 million Chinese to a better standard of living, a phenomenal accomplishment measured throughout human history. Well, it wasn't until about 2013 when China's policy, which had been non-aggressive, no efforts seriously to penetrate and dominate other countries changed. With President Xi Jinping going back over seven years ago, there emerged a new China strategy. And from 2013 on, and especially after Xi Jinping began his second term as president, there became a more aggressive pace and 
China has since penetrated the countries I've named from Sri Lanka to Congo to Chile and, and, and. I mentioned more than 60 countries today are now dominated by China, along with the ports, the waterways, and the access that China seeks to ultimately dominate the world. But let's not be downhearted by threats as if we were just some late parvenu who've come to geopolitics. We have a foundation, a Ronald Reagan foundation. We know how to compete. There are areas where we don't compete very well today. My goodness, we haven't built a nuclear power plant in 30 years. Why not? Fortunately, American industry is coming up with a very new design, and I won't bore you in detail, but it's going to be better, better than China's. And it's going to be better for climate change and reducing emissions and enabling us to have allied countries from the UK, Eastern Europe, all of Africa, see that we have a better idea and that we will come not seeking to dominate, but come with relief for the stresses they're under in Congo and the countries I named, but toward a brighter future without aggression, without foreign dominance by an alien ideology. Have faith. We can do this. We have done it. We'll have leadership changes here. But the United States can carry on in the Reagan tradition. We can do this. Thank you. Another question from the audience. Great question. <laughs> yes, uh, another great question is, what do you believe President Reagan would do today to counter Russia and China? We'll go right to you, sir, Mr. McFarlane. And then, we'll, then I'll turn it over to both uh, Mr. Meese and uh, Mr. Allen if you've got uh, comments to add at the end of this. But you first, sir. It is a question at the heart of uh, the outcome of great power competition. What do we do? Well, we do what Americans have always done apply ourselves technologically where we are superior still to China and Russia, bring ourselves together with our allies so that we can politically face China and Russia with a unified team that encompasses the Five Eyes countries, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the NATO countries, all of them, the three SI countries, and bring them together with a message, a strategy, which we can build in the Reagan tradition and then lead it to victory industrially by rebuilding the industrial base of our country and of the United Kingdom and helping Eastern Europe, Africa, and Latin America to do the same. We can do this. Today we can do it even with private capital. There's private capital sitting on the sidelines because there hasn't been a lot of great investments in the last ten, two years. We can call that to participate in project after project and the 150 or 200 new power plants, pipelines, interstates, ports that need to be improved. We can do this. We have the means, we have the tradition before long, we'll have the leadership. Mr. Allen, did you want to comment on this question about what would Reagan do today if he was in the White House? Well, I think most importantly, he would um, build a consensus. And consensus would be built through persuasion and presentation of the facts. That, that uh, precedes any sound policy options in any administration at any time. Mr. Meese, any comments? Well, I would agree with both of my colleagues, but I would add a couple of things. One, I would say we should be very strong in holding China to the, to the letter of the law 
in the various trade organizations and other four around the world. Make sure that they don't get away with the things that they're doing now, which are both illegal from the standpoint of proper trade law and also uh, inimical to the United States. The other thing is I would emphasize particularly the idea of leading the rest of the world. One of the things Ronald Reagan did was by persuasion, but also by superior information, leading the world to formulate that tremendous fortress against communism. We need to do the same thing towards aggression, uh, whether it be soft aggression through trade and other means or by military aggression. And that is so that the rest of the world is a barrier and a bulwark against what the Chinese are doing. The other thing is we should be very strong in getting into Latin America and into Africa and make sure that we are doing what we can to get those countries so that they are not totally dependent on China. But one of the things we need to do is have a strategy that is consistent and ongoing and is not the idea of lurching from idea to idea as each problem comes up and having virtually no strategy to deal with most things. One of the things we should do is re return to what has been our policy just prior to this year, and that is to become energy independent, for example, in the United States, which would be a powerful sign to the rest of the world that we can not only lead, but be successful in doing it. All right, so we have conscious of time. We'll have to take one more question from the audience, and, and then we'll go to the final polling question, and then I'll come back to our three speakers to provide a short kind of overview or final thoughts. But uh, final question from the audience. All right, our question is, please help us recall the criticisms President Reagan faced from our domestic critics of the, his objectives to overcome the Soviet intentions to dominate the world, the usual suspects. I think maybe Mr. Allen, you want to take that one first and then uh, to you, Mr. McFarland. So Mr. Allen first. Well, never-ending <laughs> uh, criticism uh, domestically uh, from the major media and from the professoriate uh, all across academe with notable exceptions such as the Foreign Policy Research Institute uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, the Hoover Institution, uh, and a few others. But um, the opposition was... Uh, firm. There was were shrieks of horror that, <laughs> at the outset that uh, President Reagan would get us into war. Um, Ed, you'll never forget the uh, first press conference uh, <laughs> where um, a couple of questions were put to the newly elected president and um, the, uh, the answers that he gave, very mild, uh, we're sending the uh, the press corps into paroxysms of fear and loathing. Uh, I, it was a it was a fun event to see the um, the press race for the telephones at the end of that first press conference <laughs> that the president gave. It was um, unbelievable, but in the end. He knew that by teaching and by uh, recitation of the facts that he could build a, a base of trust and confidence among the American people, and that's exactly what happened. Although the critics were never-ending, I might add. <laughs> Mr. McFarland, you want to add from your perspective and experience? Well, uh, as the Attorney General and Dick have said, the best evidence that the president was unfazed and tolerated criticism uh, in good humor, he prevailed. He always had a response and action and leadership and a reasoning for why our policies toward the Soviet Union or anybody else were as they were to defend American interests against aggression by an alien ideology in the Soviet Union. And it made sense. It had the virtue of being true, as Dr. Kissinger said. 
So um, you can always overcome rhetoric with truth, but you have to be uh, sometimes a pretty good actor. Else. Terrific. Now, Mr. Meese, I, I did have one final question, the prerogative of the moderator to ask. Uh, before we go in reverse order for closing comments, we'll come back to you, Mr. McFarland, first, and Mr. Allen and yourself. But, Mr. Meese, uh, when you look at what we've gone through in the last year or so, and you look at the challenges from China and Russia today, um, it was the commitment to the Reagan era to end the Cold War. Is it fair to say that we have yet to end the competition or transcend, I think more appropriately, I think words that he would even use, transcend communism? Are we there yet? I don't think we are there now because we don't have either the will in among the top leadership, nor do we have, quite frankly, the strategies to do it. You notice everything we talked about today with Ronald Reagan was that he had a strategy that combined action, rhetoric, but under, underlying all of that was a firm faith that we could succeed. Today, we seem to be dealing with every problem from a position of weakness in our uh, political leadership that's now in charge. And this is something we've got to get over and have a plan. Ronald Reagan had a plan, as Dick Allen mentioned and Bud mentioned, about <laughs> we win, they lose. Today, we don't have any plan or commitment, really, to do that. I think as we look to the, all the criticism that you were talking about, the things I mentioned, use of the term evil empire, putting the intermediate-range nuclear weapons into Europe, all of those things which were tremendously successful, ultimately, in bringing down the wall and the end of the Cold War. I've always felt that Ronald Reagan showed one thing. The best revenge is success. Amen. All right. So now, Mr. McFarland, I'll turn to you for some closing comments before we wrap up today. Attorney General has really covered it all. But I think all of us can take hope for our country from the leadership skills, the passionate love expressed at Ronald Reagan from Election Day throughout his eight-year terms because he believed in American values. And he had an approach, a methodology of finding the best people, tasking them to work hard developing comprehensive political, economic, and military solutions to every challenge we were facing, <clears throat> and then relying on his cabinet to carry it out, while he built closer ties with ally after ally throughout Europe, the Middle East, and beyond. This is leadership. Have a plan. Lead it personally. Rely on allies. He did. He got it done. He ended the Cold War. And he always stressed, we do have advantages here beyond our values. We have the best technology in the world and always have in modern history. Do what we do best. One of the reasons the Soviet Union collapsed was because they we exposed their relative backwardness, and they knew. After the Cold War ended, when you talked to a Soviet general, he said, what took you so long? We knew we were finished five years ago. Well, it's because we stressed high technology. He said, SDI really shortened the Cold War by about five years. Think about that. Vision, confidence, leadership. Mr. Allen, your closing comments? Well, I have to go back to uh, that very first meeting that I had with Ronald Reagan, then out of office, <clears throat> um, doing radio broadcasts, most of which were written by <clears throat> Peter Hannaford, whom I had mentioned earlier, and who was very... Uh, very uh, important as Ronald Reagan 
shaped uh, his ideas about a run for president of the United States. In any case, um, when I went out to see him in 1976 and uh, went to his home and had a discussion. I asked him to help me with something, and he said he would. And he said, um, what are you doing for the rest of the day? And did you come out here all the way from Washington to ask me that question? And I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, well, I've, um, and Ed Meese would know this better than anyone from way back when. Well, I've got all day free. Would you like to talk? And I said, yes, sir, I, I, I'd sure love to. I'm going back tonight, so I have plenty of time. I, I took the red eye that night, by the way, and came back much enthused after four or five hours of meeting with Ronald Reagan. And uh, we, we began to talk. And to me, he displayed a remarkable, uh, a remarkable knowledge and familiarity with the world and the way the world ought to be shaped, and had specific and definitive goals. Didn't speak of managing the Cold War, but actually said, win it and win it peacefully. That's really critically important. And it, I think it motivated the thinking of all of us that uh, we would put our shoulders to the wheel and try to help with this task of winning the Cold War peacefully. Uh, that strategy worked. It did bring, it was what ultimately created the conditions that permitted the wall to come down. And the fortunate circumstance of a Margaret Thatcher in power, of a Helmut Kohl coming to power in Germany, uh, a Pope uh, in, in office uh, in Rome, uh, creating a, a special circumstance. I'm speaking of John Paul II a special circumstance in all of Eastern Europe, and that circumstance based on hope and and the, the idea that there could be change and what had prevailed for so long after World War II in, in the Cold War could be ended, brought to an end. And Ronald Reagan created the conditions that allowed that Cold War to end and tensions to be relaxed and uh, uh, an interplay of civilizations that brought about uh, an essentially peaceful time in our lives. So uh, for the privilege of, of uh, being able to serve with a man like that who could lead and whose vision uh, prevailed, uh, I'm very grateful. Thank you. Mr. Meese, closing comments? I think that Dick just expressed it well, but in terms of Ronald Reagan's personal attributes, his personal qualities, his vision, his courage, but one other thing was his respect for other people, his respect not only for his opponents or even his enemies, so that he understood them, but he also understood how to, how to eclipse them, if you would, and to succeed. But particularly, I think it's important that he realized that he could provide the leadership, but he could use other people. He used his cabinet better than any other president since Dwight Eisenhower. He used, he worked with other people, leaders of other countries. In other words, he knew that a united front of like-minded thinking, of like-thinking people would be very successful, but particularly he knew how he doesn't have to be the smartest guy in the room, but rather that he could utilize, mobilize and utilize the efforts of others in behalf of a common objective. And that's something we need to do today, I believe, is have much more respect and teamwork in the leadership of our country and rather than the what might be the Cold War that we now have transferred to the politics of our country. And so I think that Ronald Reagan provides the example of how we could find our way out of the current problems and also an example as that goes back to some of our other presidents as well as to how they can be successful and as a result continue to uphold the tremendous, tremendously important values and the important 
sense of, of patriotism and belonging that has characterized the success of our country over the years. Thank you very much. You're here. Absolutely. So we are going a little over time, but I do think it's important to, to make a few points before we close. Uh, first off, I want to thank what I would, I would say are three national living treasures of an era that of great significance to the nation and to the world, uh, allies and competitors alike owe a great debt to the work that was done during the Reagan era in the White House. Uh, sadly, when one walks on the mall here in D.C., there is no monument, there is no library or museum that's dedicated to the memory and the lessons of what was called the Cold War. Something in lessons that I think, by honoring you gentlemen today, we can start to draw some attention and learn from our own history and apply it into this new form of great power competition against two competitors that are similar but also very, very different world dynamics with China and Russia. And I think that's something that I hope we can reflect on again, perhaps this time next year, as the day that people power, enabled by the actions of you three gentlemen and many others in the White House, made possible that cold November day in 1989. And the last thing I would like to point people to, this is not the final event at Heritage on this topic. In fact, in very short order, there are two more in this month. Please check out the Heritage website on that. But I did want to bring to everyone's attention the efforts of Catherine Gorka, who will be hosting a day-long event on the 8th of December, which will be looking more deeply at the fall of communism. I hope you will look, look it up, sign up, and participate in that event in the near future. And with that, Thank you all, the most important element of this entire endeavor, you the audience. Have a nice day. Thank you.